Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Well, uh, Premier Doug Ford had a, uh, another announcement yesterday. Uh, intends to form a committee to investigate the province's fiscal situation. We need to take every step possible to ensure that this kind of abuse to the public trust has no place in Ontario. My friends, it's time for answers because the people of Ontario deserve to know how did this happen, who let this happen, who authorized the cover-up. The people want answers. Uh, interesting accusations, and uh, they are accusations at this stage, too. And uh, the composition of the committee that uh, the Premier was talking about is rather interesting as well. Joining us to talk about this is Richard Brennan, a retired journalist uh, for the Toronto Star, covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill many, many years. Richard, thanks for the time. It's good to have you with us again. Well, good to hear you again. Some of the uh, the critics are suggesting this is nothing more than a witch hunt. So, well, it's, it's not even that. It's just a farce. Uh, theater of the farce, I'd call it. Um, yeah, it, 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 it's, it's great for his base, and it, it, it's great theater, if you will, political theater, but that's all it is. If he'd listened to your show when I've been on a few times, when we've discussed this, he would have known where that money was and where it came from. Uh, it's just, he, if he, uh, public accounts, if he'd read the budgets, if he'd bothered to read the budgets, he'd know where the additional money has come from. And, uh, you know, is it $15 billion? I'm not going to argue with him. I don't know. But we have things like the, the government, uh, you know, we talked about a long time ago, using pension plans as an asset, mm-hmm. which the Auditor General, uh, Bonnie Lissick, said that's a no-no. Okay, well, that was very public. And then, he, then they put uh, electricity costs into a separate section off the budget. She caught him at that and said, that's a no-no. And he, there's costs in there that he's not, that this, this Tory government, and I'm not going to disagree with this Tory government says it's not going ahead with, and that was free daycare, and, uh, and then uh, free pharmacare for, for, uh, for seniors. And that all adds up to billions of dollars. So right away, there's billions of dollars that are accounted for, whether you like it or not, the way it was put on the books or not put on the books. It was, it was publicly known. So how they are going to, you know, this committee is going to find anything new, I'll be very surprised. Yeah, yeah the Premier characterized this yesterday, though, Richard, as the uh, greatest scandal in the history of oh. Ontario. And my, my concern is, and I, I think you've just hit the, the nail on the head, this is redundant. I mean, if, if the Premier wants answers to that, I suggest he read uh, Bonnie Lissick's last couple of reports as yeah. Auditor General. It's all there. Yeah. There are no secrets there. Uh, this, this was an incompetent government. Yes, they blew money on contracts, on green energy contracts, and they spent way too much, and they had locked-in contracts. We know all this already. He... Well, he may not know it. Since he's, he's such a newbie to the, 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 you know, the whole provincial forum but the point is you're, you're absolutely right and this is this is just no for no other reason they're using this to further beat the liberals you know try to beat them into submission I've, i think they've been beaten into submission but try to destroy the liberal name that's that's what this is about there's, there's no other reason to go ahead with this and to play to his base that i'm i'm you know, I've found malfeasance, and I'm going to uh, take care of it. I have to laugh, though, when, 
when I see that Vic Fidelity, finance minister Vic Fidelity, you know, here's a guy when he's in opposition who would call the cops in at the drop of a hat if he thought something wasn't right with the liberal government, uh, be it the gas plants or whatever. And why isn't he calling the cops in this time? Well, I mean, if it's so serious, if it's so outrageous and so criminal, why isn't he doing it? Well, we know why he's not doing it, because he knows it's just, it's just, it's really just uh, theater more than anything else. And he's done that in the past, and you're right, there were, there were OPP investigations into a couple of the accusations against uh, the Liberals over the last 15 years, both with McGinty and the Wynn governments, we get that. Uh, and if they have evidence, or even a, you know, a sniff of something that they think is illegal, you're absolutely right. Call the cops, and and that way you're going to have an independent, uh, you know, assessment of what's going on, and they can decide whether or not there was something untoward that went on. Uh, and again, I'll go back, and I'm sure that Mr. Ford has not read uh, Bonnie Lissick's uh, Auditor General reports over the last couple of times, but she's addressed every one of the things that he talked about in the campaign. And, and so, so in other words, the money's, and she said it was wrong. It was not illegal, she said, but wrong. And 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 we th- and you know what, Richard? We all bought into that here in the province of Ontario because we booted them out of office. That's right. I mean, the, pu- the public spoke. I, it's just uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's really it's really uh, again as you and I talked about before. I mean, this is a this is a page right out of the Harper Handbook. You know, don't. Now, don't even, you know, it's not good enough to knock them down. You have to put the boots to them when they're down. And this is what, what this is about. This is just putting the boots to the Liberals. Well, you've got to find them before you can put the boots to them. Well, there's, only, exactly. there's only two or three of them left now, isn't there? Is there enough there? Well, they're, look, they're not, you should speak of that. They're not even going to be have a representation on this committee. Nine people on the committee, six of them are going to be uh, progressive conservatives, and three of them are going to be NDPers. Well, if this isn't the epitome of a kangaroo court, I don't know what is. And they're going to have a report out. Well, this is going to take, uh, what, they're going to have a report out that's going to go around just around the time of the budget, uh, which is which I, I find rather interesting when you look at the timing of this, too, Richard, that uh, the, the, uh, the stuff that they're supposedly accumulating, and, and I, I know how they're going to do this. They're going to go behind closed doors and just read Bonnie Lissick's reports because that's where all the information is. Uh, and just regurgitate that. But it's going to come out just around the same time that Vic Fidelity is going to produce a budget, and, and it's going to be the justification for the, some of the cuts that I'm sure are going to be coming forward now. Well, the, 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 you, you've, this is crescendo that's been building for uh, a few weeks now, or at least a couple of weeks with the, whole, with the whole report on you know the fact that it's $15 million, billion dollars instead of $6.7 billion. And, and now we're, we're going to look into uh, possible malfeasance and uh, book cooking and all that. This is, yeah, you're right. This is all being done to pave the way for either uh, cuts to programs, cuts to you know, uh, staff, or both. Which is obviously going to be an uncomfortable time for, for the government because, uh, you know, Mr. Ford promised time and time again during the campaign that, that he was going to find these savings, $6 billion in savings, and there'd be no job losses. Uh, and and we we questioned them at the time, and they said, you know, and of course we were vilified for questioning them. I mean, how dare you even do that? But the reality is, is you can't do that. I mean, you know, the governments make cuts, as you've written about for the last hundred years now. Uh, you either cut staff or you cut programs or you sell off assets. I mean, that's the way that governments try to save money. Yep. So something's going to have to happen here. And now he's going to justify it by having this report, which is really information that we already have. Oh, 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 well, that's that's the laughable part of it. 
to, to suggest that this is brand new information. They've got to put some kind of spin on it, and this is their spin. We had no, we had no idea that books were so bad. Again, we've heard that a million times. Uh, and, w- well, you heard uh, Mr. Fidelli say that everybody's going to have to feel the pain. Yeah, so we know what's coming, and 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 that's that's a given. I think we all get that. But th- this is, uh, I, I I don't want to even consider it as piling on. It's just it's a it's a redundancy that that I I wonder why people are just accepting and simply say, yeah, we need to do this. And and you know, if you just curled up and read the reports that Miss Lissick's done and the OPP reports too, because let's face it, you're absolutely right. When uh, Vic Fidelli was in opposition. Uh, he sick the cops on the liberals a couple of different times, and there were investigations. And, you know, those reports are still readily available, too, if you want to get answers about where the money's been going for the last 14 years. Well, here's a couple. You're talking about money. Here's a couple things that it, it's no, there's no secret. Uh, the $2.2 billion, uh, you know, for, for, for implementing... Uh, oh, I'm just trying to think. Of, oh, sorry, the expanded daycare. Yeah. Expanded daycare was going to cost $2.2 billion. There's $2.2 billion that we know of, and the Tories have said that they're not going to proceed on. So there's, there's a big secret. And then we've got the, you know, the, the uh, free daycare for seniors, and that was going to be a half a, half a billion dollars a year, and that was very public. I mean, what are they? What do they hope? To, well, they don't hope to find anything. Quite frankly, they've got their mind made up, and they know exactly what they're going to say. But we've known all this over and over and over again. And so, where's the secrets? Where's where's the outrage? Where's where's the malfeasance? I just don't see it. But again, you don't have to see it. The government government's right now. Is a riding a bit of a popular high still, I think, in Ontario, and they're just they're going to do anything they can to either further, you know, put the boots to the Liberals and raise their stock. And that's what it's all about. Well, it's it's the way politics, I guess, is played these days, and uh, I'm I guess some people are comfortable with that. I guess, well, if your team's winning, I guess you're, you're comfortable with it. But it's it, there's no such thing as, as governing. It's just you're always you're always campaigning. That seems to be the mantra these days. Is uh, you know, I, I would much prefer Mr. Ford sit down and say, "I'm going to strike a committee right now to find out how we're going to get ourselves out of this mess." And he's he's already announced some cuts. And, and you're right. I mean, the daycare program is that's money that's that was in that 15 billion that's not going to be spent anyway. So we know that. Uh, the PharmaCare project, we already know that. He's canceled the Green Energy Act, so there'll be no new contracts there. No. So on and on it goes. And, and uh, you know, and I'm not going to suggest that the Liberals, everything they did was right, because it wasn't. And we disagreed a lot with a lot of the things that the Wynn government did and a lot of the things the, the Wynn government spent their money on. But it's all there. In other words, you know, he, he says we're going to call, get people to, you know, we're going to bring people forward and they're going to have to testify. This is what the Auditor General does. This is this is this is what's so ridiculous about this. He's going to strike a parliament or a, a legislative committee that's just going to repeat the work that the auditor general has do- already done and continues to do. It, it, it's a, it's, a, it's making her job redundant. Well, except except for one thing. Except for one thing. Now sure. she's turning her direction to this government, and she's the one that's going to be assessing them. I, you know, this. Oh. Is, <laughs> well, it's funny you t- you took the thought out of my head here because be careful what you do. When you're a government, be careful what kind of roadblocks, new policies, and whatever that you know that 
tie the hands of a government that you bring in and what kind of outrage you create, because that can backfire in a big hurry. If you, you put up a standard that you're saying everybody's got to live by, you know, you've got to be just like us, and the first time that you don't live up to that standard, that does not go well with the public because they expect you to live by the credo that you set. And you just wait and see. I mean, it happens every time. This government's going to get embroiled in some kind of controversy, and, and the opposition's going to say, well, you said that you were, you know, that you're lily white here and that your hands were clean. And maybe not so. So when you, when you start poking the bear, and that's what this really is, that bear could turn around and bite you. And don't be surprised if it's two or three years from now that it does. I don't recall, and, and maybe you can shed some light on this, Richard, any time where Miss Lissick's reports came out, uh, which basically vilified the, the Wynn government for the way they were spending money, uh, did, did anybody in opposition say you haven't turned over every rock? Did they say these are incomplete reports? I don't remember Mr. Fidelli or anybody else on the opposition benches ever saying that. No. So, so that begs the question. So, what do you, what do you, what do you, what are you looking for here? What, what, what are you going to find? What are you going to look, or where are you going to look that, that hasn't already been looked? And believe me, Vic Fidelli is very thorough, and he would have went over all her reports and budgets with a fine-tooth comb. So he knows exactly that this is, this is just, you know, uh, it's just showmanship at this point. And we'll really accomplish nothing, quite frankly, at the end of the day, in terms of value for the public. It's just going to, it's just going to be more political theater and blather, and which really doesn't get us anywhere. You know, what policies, what poli- what, what's being done to help the government or the province move forward. That's what people want to, at some point at least, it's still the honeymoon here, the problem, you know, the voters are going to say, okay, fine, you've done all this, and, you know, liberals are bad, blah, blah, blah. But what, what are you doing? Like, what constructive programs are you bringing in? I haven't heard anything yet. All I've heard of them is, slashing and and getting rid of existing programs where's the positive come here that's i think will have to be done pretty quickly well and look at all new governments do that i mean the mcginney did government did that with some of the stuff that ernie eves and his uh, pcs had done sure Uh, mike harris certainly did that i mean you know that was a a very contrasting style of government i mean one of the first things he did of course was a campaign promise he canceled a photo radar uh, and moved on, and and they all go through that that honeymoon period. You're right, Richard, of saying, okay, you know, these guys did that, and it was so bad, so we're going to just chop that. We're not doing that anymore. But then, at some point, you've got to start saying, okay, here's our platform. And one of the first things Harris did in that card was, of course, sell the 407, uh, which he did not campaign on, and that raised an awful lot of eyebrows. And it begs the question: What's the Ford government going to plan to do now to to govern? What are they going to do as far as budgets are concerned? Well, we don't know because they didn't give us a platform. So we he don't. Ran, he ran on no platform. So th- this is—is is, is this going to be a, a proactive government or a reactive government? I mean, uh, we already—you we, know—we've got the numbers already about how you know the money's been spent. We already know that that the, the government's uh, got this big deficit. Mr. Fidelli made that announcement already, uh, but at some point they're going to have to start saying, "Okay, now here's what we're going to do about it." 
sooner or later, this this government and God bless them, and they were they were voted in with the with a good mandate, are going to start are going to have to start governing because they sure haven't yet. It's it's just been really about telling the world how bad the previous government was and getting rid of whatever programs they didn't like. And that's it. Like, what, what, what have really they stood for so far? That's a question I think an awful lot of people are asking these days. And I, I, I want to ask you one other thing. From all your, your years covering Queen's Park and Parliament Hill, for that matter, when something like this happens and they said, okay, we're going we're gonna to send our resources into this, you know, these nine MPPs, uh, six of them, of course, being government members. There's going to have to be staff time in this too. So this does, this does, this comes with a cost, obviously. And we, I don't know if we're ever going to find out what that is either. Oh, you won't. You don't. I mean, this will just be all built into the cost of you know running Queens Park. You'll never know, and you'll never be able to get at it either. Uh, what what the cost is, and, and of course it has a cost. And it, but it takes a time away from doing other things. That's that's my concern. Is is you know bringing forward uh, legislation, debating that legislation, having committees on that legislation, or proposed legislation. That that's that's what should be the government should be doing, not some kind of phony witch hunt. Are you surprised you haven't heard from Andrea Horvath on this? I mean, she is the opposition leader. Uh, according to Mr. Ford's plan here, there are going to be three NDP MPPs on this committee. Uh, are, are they going to play ball with this? Are they going to go along with this thing? Well, I don't know. I, I know that she's been very critical of, of the committee and, and saying basically it's, it's just a phony kind of witch hunt. But if you believe that, you know, and if you just think it's, you know, it's it's silly, are you going to participate in it? That's that's the question. That's what I'd like to see, just how they're going to respond to this. I mean, now that he's he's said this is going to go into place right now, are, are they going to play along with this? I mean, if she thinks it's a farce and, and thinks it's a waste of time and money, is she actually going to allow her MPPs to be uh, participants in this? Well, that's a good question, uh, and only one person can answer that. <laughs> <laughs> Waiting for the other shoe to drop. Exactly. Always a pleasure, Richard. Thanks so much for this today. Okay, Bill. Take it easy. You betcha. Richard Brennan, of course, who covered Queens Park for many, many years. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's uh, the Chief's Town Hall. Hamilton uh, Chief of Police, Eric Gert, is with us here in studio. Good to have you here. It's been a busy couple of weeks for you. It has, Bill. And it's more than just schools back. <laughs> well, I want to begin with uh, the, the story that was the big story, of course, last week, and that was uh, the uh, Project Scopa, uh, and of course the, the media conference where they announced the arrests uh, in the, uh, the the murder of uh, Musa Tano. And uh, so many things I want to talk about here, and I'm sure we're going to get some questions from some of our listeners about this. But first and foremost, uh, talk to me about the coordination. Uh, because we've seen this with other murder investigations. Of course, the Bosma murder was, was one that I think comes to mind right off the bat. Uh, the collaboration and coordination that goes on between police services, how, how that's arrived at and, and just how you divide who's going to do what. Well, actually, before I get to the Scopa, then I, I will speak to the Bosma. Sure. You've now got the third conviction uh, with uh, uh, Wayne Millard's death. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, Laura Babcock prior to that, and of course, uh, Tim Bosma. Uh, so at the time, uh, and, you know, 
listeners not, may not be aware of it, we pushed actually for a multi-jurisdictional major case manager on that investigation. And in the one case with Laura Babcock, there was no body. On the second case, uh, you know, the other two cases unrelated to Bosma uh, was Wayne Millard, which had originally been, you know, uh, concluded at that point as a suicide and obviously, you know, raises those flags. Well, it speaks to how we connect to our other police organizations, the information that flows between uh, those. And some of it is through joint forces, projects that we do on a routine basis, standing uh, joint force committees that we have, uh, you know, whether it's the rope or, uh, you know, the gang strategies, whole whole raft of them that we do. And we participate just for this reason. So we get intelligence information, cross investigations going on that. And in the case of Scopa, that's what happened. We had the, the homicide here uh, with Ange Mustano and then, of course, in York region as well. And what I guess the public may not see in my commentary on uh, the opening, and of course, we left the thunder, so to speak, to the detective sergeant, because they're doing the work. Yeah. They announce the arrests, who did what, they take the direct questions, because they're the investigators. Uh, the chiefs don't normally get into that realm, and that's the major case management model, is that uh, the major case detective sergeant is charged of the case, because investigatively, there may be things that he knows that I don't, which is okay, because you need hold back evidence, you need a whole realm of things. But when you want the specifics of the case, and whether it was Detective Sergeant Cavanaugh and Bosma, or in this case, uh, you know, Peter Tom and Detective Sergeant Kilby, uh, both speaking to those homicides. Obviously, the public and the reporters want to hear from those frontline investigators. From my perspective, you know, when you're talking about policing costs, and my comment was, they're complex investigations, they're costly, but they're absolutely necessary for public trust. Because when these things happen, you can't, you know, if you look at jurisdictions in the states where they're getting eight, 900 homicides a year, um, they have to prioritize. Well, thankfully, we're not in that case. And this strikes to the heart of public confidence and, you know, holding people accountable for this, and we have. How do you determine who takes the lead on this investigation, though? Because you've got a lot of, uh, a lot of you know, work going on, a lot of heavy lifting that goes on here, and, and somebody's got to be at yep. the top. So in this case, it was actually Pauline Gray from Toronto was the major case management uh, multi-jurisdictional manager. So York was investigating, we were investigating. So Toronto actually provided uh, the multi-jurisdictional major case manager. And we have a couple within our service as well. You can imagine the training that's required for the complexity of the investigation. So to backstep again, never mind this complexity, think about Bosman, all the things that flowed from that, the evidence, uh, the number of warrants that were executed. Uh, they talk about part sixes, which is formerly known as wiretaps that go on. Uh, managing all that is hugely complex. Then you add on not just one investigation, but multiple investigations and disentangling uh, risks from a prosecution standpoint, making sure you meet legal authorization so that when you proceed to court, you know, it's not just we got the guy and, uh, well, we hope it turns out. No, we want to arrest the person, hold them accountable in the court system, which, of course, the judiciary do, we don't. But we have to present a solid case. So, yeah, to be a major case, uh, multi-jurisdictional major case manager, you had to have experience doing those investigations, have to understand the complexities. And in this case, it reached out internationally. So you're dealing with the Mexican police. You're dealing with, uh, you know, Homeland Security, uh, CBSA, Canadian Border Services Agency. Um, you know, those are just a few of the names. Those are major partners to it. But then you have all the other tentacles that reach out beyond that. There's always a concern from the public, though, Chief, uh, about how long it takes to actually get the bad guys. 
Uh, and, and I'll use the Bosma case, and, and, and I guess to a certain extent the Musatown over the case that you just talked about here with Scopa. Uh, as, as the Bosma case came to, to, to our attention and we started to get some of the facts and figures once the trial started, uh, it became pretty clear that the, the, you had those guys on your radar very shortly after Tim Bosma w- went missing. Uh, and, and I got the sense from uh, from what the Detective Sergeant Toms was saying, same thing in the Skota case, too, is that you had a pretty good idea who you were looking for right off the bat. It takes time, obviously, to, to build a case and, and to get evidence and stuff like this, but uh, but it didn't take too long for you to actually focus in on, on these individuals. That's right. And some of that can be previous intelligence information. Obviously, with video evidence now, it's so huge. You know, you have a picture of the vehicle or somebody goes there the day before. You've got neighbors who have their own video surveillance equipment. Uh, it can make or break the case. And we're finding not just these investigations, but investigations in general, whether it's sexual assaults or decent acts, um, when you have the physical evidence uh, through that. And we're seeing again, and I applaud, huge community cooperation in these investigations. It's key. I mean, I've said a number of times, I don't take it for granted. And in our jurisdiction, we're seeing some of these outcomes for exactly that reason, because the community is willing to step up and become involved, and it makes it safer for everybody. Relative to timing, uh, keeping in mind that our threshold is reasonable grounds to arrest somebody, so that's a set of facts and circumstances that would cause a cautious, ordinary, prudent person to have reason to believe, and that goes beyond mere suspicion. You know, I didn't come up with that term. That is uh, in law. Uh, that's the definition of reasonable grounds. The conviction, to get a conviction, has beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, that's a much higher threshold. So we also have to look at the timing of when you make the arrests, and we have to weigh public safety in the interim too. Are they going to do anything bad in the interim? So sometimes we've been forced to arrest people part of having the full case together. In this case, uh, that wasn't the case. And to your point, some of the people were under observation, but you know, you still have to have reasonable grounds. You have to meet that threshold. Well, I guess one of the best examples of that in, in this investigation, uh, especially with the SCOPA, uh, was that, that sharing of information. As, as I think they explained during the, the, the media conference, I guess York Region had the video of of somebody walking up to the car. That's right. Uh, and they said, well, we're not sure who they are. And, I got, and you said, well, we've got that information. I'll tell you who those guys are. Yep. Uh, so bingo, that, that connects the dots. Yeah, and that's really where policing has evolved, I'll say, in the last 20 to 30 years. Yes, we worked cooperatively previously, but usually on a case-by-case basis. We understand now uh, that you have to reach out much further than that, and there's, um, you know, whether it's... Was, was the template for that the, the Bernardo case? Because that's, uh, I, I remember at the time talking with the Niagara Regional Police and, and, and Toronto Police about that, and they said, boy, you know, if I knew what they knew, uh, that might have been solved a whole lot sooner. Yeah, so the short answer is yes. It was the Campbell Commission, Justice Archie Campbell, who post that investigation said, uh, we need to make this work better. And, you know, as, as a member of the judiciary, but he understood because he'd done trials, uh, for public safety, we have to be able to share information. So that's a major case management model that was implemented in Toronto, and that requires databases being shared. It's quite complex and very onerous in terms of uploading of information, much like ViClass, uh, violent offender, you know, classification linkage system. I think I got it right. Um, But the whole idea is you have analytics that will give you indicators and then make those matches. And, you know, if I know Bill who's working in York, I phone Bill Kelly and I say, Bill, this is what I got. And you go, gee, that sounds a lot like mine. Send me your file. I'll send you mine. Okay. And you know what? I think we might have the same people here. This may be a multi-jurisdictional major case. And then you use that framework that you've talked about of the Campbell Commission 
to do it. And then they have designated roles for each of the investigators. And the idea was that you wouldn't have gaps because clearly for Bernardo, there were gaps in information. I, I don't want to spend the whole hour talking about uh, th- th- this particular investigation because I've got some people on the phones. And I am going to get to your calls in just a couple of seconds. But one other question about this that was raised by a lot of our listeners, and, and uh, I, I know that you were listening and I had uh, Peter Edwards, uh, the great writer uh, who's done a number of different crime books, and uh, James Dubrow. Uh, on the show uh, last week to talk about the scenarios. And and the question that we had for for both of them is, how far up the chain do you go? Because uh, during the investigation, you announced about the arrest and the warrants that had been issued at this stage, but you said these are not the people that planned it. Uh, somebody else did. Uh, I got the sense, again, from the comments that uh, the officers were making, that, again, they've got a pretty good idea who it is. It's got to be a little more complex to try to go further up the ladder to try to, uh, 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 you know, assess guilt and, and actually maybe in some cases make arrests. Exactly. And, uh, you know, we will follow it as far as we can. And again, you have to meet that threshold, both of reasonable grounds to make the arrest uh, for prosecution. To get a conviction, you have to be beyond a reasonable doubt. That's a pretty high threshold. Um, but yes, we will follow that. And, uh, you know, I hate to use uh, cultural references, but, you know, if you've seen any of the Godfather movies, The Sopranos, any of those organized crime and the, the methodologies, they're not exactly secrets. And, you know, um, you can look at how they do it and how they insulate themselves and the accountabilities, the loyalty, all that stuff. But, you know, I'll just allude to uh, The Sopranos. When you look at the later episodes, quite frankly, loyalty does not enter into it. In fact, Tony kills his best friend at one point, dumps him off in the lake. Um, There's a girlfriend that's killed later on, which is a horrific Kills his nephew. That as well. So, you know, they're talking about loyalty, but really? Because at the end of the day, when somebody else is at risk in their positions, then somebody dies. So I don't know quite where the loyalty is. And I got to tell you, from my research on gangs, it's the same thing. They originally bring them in for this sense of security and obviously money, drugs, all the other attributes. But at the end of the day, there's no loyalty and you can get popped just as easily as the next guy. All right, we'll uh, move on to a lot of other things. Unless, of course, you have questions uh, about uh, this investigation. 905-645-3221, star 9900. It's the Chief's Town Hall on the Bill Kelly Show from 900 CHML. Robert, thank you for your patience. Uh, welcome to the program today. Hello, Robert. Oh, hi. I- I've been emailing the Chief of Police for like about 10 days now about my MPP, giving me the runaround, and he just doesn't respond back. Yeah, uh, Robert, you, you realize that this has been before all the appeal boards. We've discussed this at the board meetings. It hasn't been before. And, and the, the deputy the chief let him answer, mo- please. most recently uh, spoke to you about your case, which dates back some years. And I'm not going to get into particulars because that's not appropriate. But any of the things I've mentioned have been in the public venue already. And uh, you're well aware of that. So um, I just provide that. Thanks so much for the call. 905-645-3221, star 9900. Email bkelly at 900chml.com. Phil is on email, Chief. Says, uh, with the legislation of pot in just a couple of weeks, uh, is the police service ready to enforce the laws in regards to smoking it in public while driving, while stoned, etc., etc.? Short answer is yes. Um, Some of the gaps that exist in terms of the federal government, the provincial government, they've not come out with uh, certain major decisions that need to be done. And I understand it's, you know, top of the plate. Uh, The legislation is in place. So anything from impaired driving to possession, 
there are some new approaches, obviously, with uh, cannabis possession between uh, 31 and 50 grams, which is now a ticketable offense. Uh, it is a criminal offense, but it's not going to require prints and pictures and a criminal conviction beyond the 51 grams. And I'm not going to get even into, is it wet cannabis? Is it a soluble uh, THC compound? Is it, uh, you know, dried cannabis? Um, that's a whole other discussion. Relative to the dispensaries, we're still waiting for the decision from the government, which is supposed to come out uh, early next year in April. Uh, who will be authorized to do it in the interim? Uh, they are using medical marijuana suppliers through the government. Uh, medical, or sorry, uh, dispensaries remain illegal. What will change come October 17th is that the penalties are much greater in terms of uh, monetary penalties. Uh, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars for fines, uh, which... Uh, the chiefs of police have been pressing for because currently it's an inadequate. And, uh, you know, there's so many permutations to this. Um, I, I are we ready? Um, as ready as we can be given the circumstances, given where the legislation, there's still some regulations that need to be drafted. Well, they haven't even decided on that yet. I mean, where, whose jurisdiction is this? Yes. The municipality has a say in this, and yes. they're asking for one anyway, wh right. where these shops can be located. Correct. Uh, and, and, of course, you can't enforce anything until they pass that law. I mean, that's not going to happen anytime soon. Because uh, as we just found out, uh, the last city council meeting before the election is today, or tomorrow rather. So that's, that's not going to happen. And that's at the municipal level, but even the provincial and federal, all those rules have not been decided on yet. Um, it's not ours to do. We've certainly had input both from the Canadian Association Chiefs of Police and the Ontario Association Chiefs of Police. Um, relative to the impaired driving, yes, we're well positioned on that. We have had both uh, standard field sobriety testing going on for our frontline officers. We have drug recognition experts in place. And my emphasis is um, it's not just about THC consumption. It's also about uh, prescription drugs, uh, sleep deprivation. Uh, it's about alcohol and the combination of all those things. And if your driving behavior is such that you're impaired, that's what we'll be focusing on. So I wouldn't get too caught up in the, well, I had a joint 18 days ago, and would that, in fact, you know, affect it or not? We'll be looking for the indicia of impairment. And whether that's a combination of those things, it's a big part of it, but there's so many permutations to this. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's the Chief's Town Hall. Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gerd is with us uh, for the rest of the hour. And uh, we'll go to your calls in just a couple of minutes here at 905-645-3221 and star 9900. Your questions, your comments, your emails and tweets for the Chief of Police. Uh, there has been a rash, and I don't know if that's the right verb or not, but a number of, of shootings in the, the last little while. Now, you've talked to us in the past about, uh, about gun violence, and, and, and we're going to have another discussion about that later on in the program today. Uh, but it is becoming a neighborhood concern, and I know that initially, uh, you know, we hear phrases like, well, it was a targeted uh, attack, and we figure, okay, well, the, the public's not at harm. But it, it, when the people are firing guns off, they're, the public is at risk. Yeah, and my comment there's a couple times is, one, sometimes these people aren't particularly accurate at shooting, unless they've done video games for a number of years, uh, which does actually increase your, your target acquisition skills. Uh, but the errant round can be just as lethal to some pedestrian, and that's always a concern for us from the public safety. We did a report to the board uh, last month, and actually uh, our shootings in, in Hamilton are down from last year. They are up over the five-year average, but they are down uh, as 
you know, the homicide rate as well was down. Now, as soon as we said, of course, uh, we had a homicide that night after we reported to the board, and I said, I don't want to jinx things. And, of course, we've had a homicide over the weekend. So I think the larger dynamic is it's across North America, and particularly in Canada. You can see Toronto, and I'm not going to get into comparisons, but there three are more, Three more today in Toronto. Yeah, and they're exceeding their homicide rate from last year already. Uh, you know, my heart goes out to the victims, uh, to uh, the people who have to deal with these things, do the investigations, and of course, the general public, right? It's it's a huge concern. Uh, relative to strategies for gun control, it's not simple. Uh, we do know that most of the firearms are either acquired uh, through break-ins or uh, illegally transported up from the United States. And of course, in our jurisdiction, we give a breakdown on that as well. Um, in a large part, they were firearms stolen from lawful gun owners. Um, and, you know, the, the mayor had asked me at that meeting about the restrictions for uh, both prohibited and restricted weapons. And they are quite complex, uh, both in terms of transportation, where you can use it, when you can have it, when you can have it, how it's stored in the house, which has to be safely and under uh, very strict guidelines. Uh, but what we're seeing is the incidence of violence in general, I would say, whether it's shootings and or stabbings or even just, you know, physical assaults. Um, this is a concern and, uh, you know, there's societal factor, factors, there's all kinds of dynamics. Well, well let me ask you about that. I, Ross McLean was a security consultant. He was a former Toronto police officer, of course, uh, is, a, is a frequent guest on the show. And he, Ross was talking to us yesterday and he says, look at, he says, this is, to a, a large extent, this is drug related. I mean, the, the preponderance of guns, he says, there's there's more drugs on the street, whether it's opioids or whatever. Uh, and this this is, it's kind of like the Wild West. And is, he says, unless you get the drug control problem, under control, you're not going to get the gun control problem on, or the gun problem under control. Do you concur with that? And I do. We've talked about it before and we've done the analytics. Money, guns, and drugs are quite often uh, the trifecta, not a great trifecta. Um, they are the three major components. And so to your point, you know, if we're going to do preventative measures with people with addictions, that helps reducing, you know, the demand for drugs. You now see the change in the drug distribution. Uh, and now we're going to legalize marijuana. That's a whole other ball of wax. Uh, but you still have the opioid crisis going on, the reemergence of heroin use, uh, the inclusion of fentanyl now as a marketing strategy. And I think I mentioned this in the show previously. I, I went to our frontline investigators and said, explain to me how this works where you have a drug dealer adding a potentially lethal substance to the op opioids, like uh, the whole consumer basis, you don't kill your customers, right? Because you don't make money. Uh, and uh, her response was, well, no, um, in talking to people who are ha consuming, they say, well, yeah, it gives you that little extra kick. The problem is, as we all know, how much of that extra kick and what can you handle, eh, it may be lethal. So this is, you know, uh, you know, you've got the deaths from that. You've got the deaths resulting from people fighting over the money. And then you've got the diversity of drugs that are happening now. And then we haven't even talked about designer drugs where it's not even prohibited yet. You have some chemist working in a lab uh, constructing a new one that goes around the parameters of what's defined under the CDSA, the Controlled Drug and Substance Act. But, but so. there's, and there's a lot of money involved in this, obviously, and it's cash. But oh, yeah. so is, is, is this, well, if I'm going to be carrying that kind of money around, uh, they, the other people know I'm doing that, so I've got to protect myself? Is that their mindset? Exactly, because, you know, you go to the, the drug exchange and you're not carrying a firearm and somebody pulls one out and says, you know what, I'm going to take the money and I'm going to keep uh, keep the drugs myself or vice versa. And uh, again, back to popular culture, we've seen this and how it works. Then you've got the popular culture driving uh, some of the, the mythology around these pieces too. But yeah, money, guns, drugs.
you spent some time on the gang squad, but mm-hmm. I, I, and obviously oversee the whole thing now as chief. Uh, how difficult is it to try to get information about what's going on on the street? Because uh, invariably, when there's an incident such as we had this past weekend, and there have been way too many others in, in the last couple of years, uh, what I hear time and time again is, well, nobody's talking. Yeah, uh, and I know that the detective sergeant in this case has said, no, they are getting uh, responses from the people involved that were there and then. But uh, again, a lot of people don't want to be associated with it or uh, be viewed as a rat or somebody else is going to come after them. We get those pieces, but at the same time, you know, if you let it happen, uh, then quite frankly, it might happen to you as well. So at a certain point, you have to offer up the evidence for the community members. Um, They've been very good with us in terms of bringing that information forward. And I just talked about it relative to, uh, you know, the Mustano. But again, it's not the, um, in this case, TOC members. It's, uh, It's the general public who are assisting us. 905-645-3221, 905-645-3221, star 9900. Uh, the Chief of Police is here. Eric Gert is here to take your questions and your calls on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Tony, thanks for holding on. How are you today? Not too bad, Bill. How's yourself? Top of the world. Uh, it's for the Chief. It's uh, pertaining to uh, MANA and the uh, uh, court order about uh, that kind of stuff uh, so that they can limit their uh, picketing so the the uh, people can uh, get their way into the company and the company can continue work with uh, instead of unionized workers uh, they can get their scabs to go in there but anyways uh, what as far as the man has been out for five years the court order has been hanging on the on the fence for five years uh, some of these security people I believe are supposed to be just controlling the gate not controlling the the picketers but the police, uh, uh, I was just wondering, how long uh, do these uh, court orders la- supposed to last? Uh, and when the companies are using them, it seems to be so much abuse because they force the workers, they offer them 30%, 40% less wages, and if they don't take it, they close the door j- just before they uh, are supposed to get severance pay. And because it's a uh, court order, or because it's a labor dispute, then the uh, courts won't get involved. They w- they don't have to pay them their uh, their severance pay. But as far as the police go, why is the police seem to be so favorative so for businesses to continue their work? All right, Tony, I'm, I'm going to let the chief answer that. Now, I'll I'll just tell you right off the bat, he can't talk about contract negotiations. Okay. Uh, uh, but the police presence there, it's a good question. Thanks so yeah, much. Yeah, and I, uh, there was a lot of questions in there and a lot of commentary. So I'll speak to the role of the police in labor disputes. Our, our role is to keep the peace. Uh, that's the primary role. We do not take sides. And in fact, we have labor relations officers who are trained in this to come in when you have disputes between both sides. As you've alluded to, it is a civil process, whether it's a collective agreement or whether it's uh, um, uh, an employer that does not have a unionized uh, labor force, <clears throat> then the, the civil courts can get involved. Uh, we will ensure that you know the court orders are respected. But often, if you have breaches, our role is to uh, take evidence down to that effect. And then when we're compelled to come to court and say what happened, and quite frankly, whether it's an employer or the unionized employees, uh, we're taking a neutral position. We just describe what happened. Uh, our role is not to take sides, and we don't. Uh, however, when the courts have enacted something that we have to do and directing us to, uh, we will obviously follow that direction. Uh, but, you know, the old days of breaking the line and joining arms, uh, we've come a long way in terms of police operations. We don't do that. It, it's not very productive. 
let's just say, and, and we all saw it here, and you know, I grew up in Hamilton, uh, whether it's Stelco or other organizations, and obviously that has changed ownership. Uh, but you know, we had members of families with the union, members of families with management, and I'm talking about the police members. Uh, their family members could be on either side of the thing, and then there we are starting to lock arms and get a truck through, only to have it swell back up, and now you know it was 15 members present from the the union and management. And now we've got 400. So that's not the way to solve it. Um, it is through the court process that needs to be done. Our fundamental role is to keep the peace. And we have people trained on labor relations. We've looked at the jurisprudence on this. Uh, we don't just go in there, certainly not the beck and call of either side. And uh, as I say, our fundamental role is to keep the peace. Thanks for the call, Tony. 905-645-3221. Start 9900. Back to your phone call. Sport Chief of Police, Eric Gert. Pat, you're next on the program. Welcome. Hi, thank you very much. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I have, I have a question for the chief. I live on uh, Highway 52 through Coketown, and uh, turning turning into our driveway seems to be a hazard. That it's it's a safety issue to the to the ninth degree. You know, we have people that fly by us on the on the gravel shoulder, and they're throwing rocks up in the air, and they're they're doing they're doing you know 70, 80 kilometers an hour passing. Well, who who would you contact, or do you have a connection to contact to get signs put along that that strip of the highway? It's the whole highway has the problem from from Wilson Avenue right to right to the roundabout. Who would you who would you contact to get signs that you know passing on the shoulder is prohibited? I know it's a hundred ten dollar fine because I asked an officer what is the penalty for doing this. It is somehow people have to be deterred from passing you on the shoulder of the road. They you know if, if you're if you're stopped to make a left hand turn into your driveway, it's literally a race to get around you. It, it's like it's like holy smokes, people don't have the patience to wait for a clearing. It, it's ridiculous. So do you have a connection or, or is there a name that you could recommend that we could talk to about getting some signs up there? That, that I think you're talking that? to the right guy, Pat. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, yeah, there's you know there's, there's, there's a couple of questions mixed in there. So, so first of all, uh, it's city traffic that, that deals with posting of signs. And in fact, if you want to see a variance in the speed limit, those type of things, that's who you approach to get it. Although uh, 52 may be governed uh, by the province, but I'm, I don't think it is. I think it's a, a local jurisdiction. Um, yeah. However, because uh, then you get into Queens Highways and all that. And But in any event, that's step one. So city traffic for, and general knowledge, and you raise a really good point. Uh, you know, as a homeowner trying to get in off the soft shoulder, you talk about gravel flying. Um, you know, you're not allowed to pass on the right uh, when somebody's like, you got to stop behind them if they're making a left-hand turn on a highway that has that speed limit. And one right. of the big things, and I thought about this on uh, Rymel Road, for example, um, you have pedestrians walking on there routinely, not so much in Copetown, uh, but in some areas of Copetown you do, um, but certainly on Rymel Road. So people passing on the right, and then suddenly you're there with a pedestrian. So never mind, you know, a vehicle turning into a drive and, and the lethality of that. So one, you can't do it. Uh, so yeah. that's an enforcement from our perspective. We certainly pass that along to our Division Three commander. So that's more of an enforcement. The signs fall to the city. And then the general awareness of peace, certainly for our listeners, is they think, well, you know, it's actually a drivable surface. Therefore, I can just go to the right and drive around. Well, you can't. And no. unless it's paved to do so, which certain intersections have that, but they yeah. don't generally do that either. Because then when you have people turning at intersections, you've got the flow of traffic. Then suddenly somebody peers to the right and you're like, whoa. So, yeah, uh, yeah certainly uh, we share your concern. So there's an enforcement end of it. There's also a uh, regulation, the speed limit. And uh, for Copetown, that's uh, city traffic. 
It's, it's really, it's really a, a hazardous street. We, my wife has been turning left into our driveway, and she's waiting for, uh, for um, oncoming traffic to get, to get a break to go into our driveway. Mm-hmm. And she's had people passing her in the, in the in oncoming traffic and gotcha. cutting off. It's, it's almost like, wow, what's wrong with society where we can't be patient enough to let a person go into the... So the officer that I asked about that situation said, well, if you pull out and there's a person passing you while you're stopped to make a left into your driveway, that you're actually at fault because... Because yeah. you're pulling out in front of him. So I said, well, how can that be? Like, I'm yeah. waiting for a clearance to, to in front of me, and all of a sudden I, I got a guy that, that's flying by me doing, you know, 80 or 90 to get around all the cars that are stopped. And, and it's like, holy smoke. So you say that city traffic is the people to contact, eh? For the signs, for the enforcement, that's our end of it. And you're yeah. talking about left turn, fail to avoid reasonable opportunity for collision under the act. And yes, it is an odd section. Uh, but at the same time, the onus is on the person turning left to also look back to their left to ensure that uh, it is safe to do so for a variety of reasons. So it's yeah, an odd yeah. section of the act and not one that goes yeah. uh, very popular when you have to uh, issue those offense notice, having done it a couple times when I did accidents. Um, but yeah. you're quite right. But from just a safety perspective, then, uh, you know, I'll go back to my, you know, driving uh, education days, that left shoulder check before you do something, uh, yeah. just for your own safety is always a good idea. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. I wouldn't want to get, you know, T-boned by somebody that's passing. Right. I, I, I understand that. But yeah. The, uh, so, yeah, I, I thought my wife was going to contact the, uh, the city council for our area. To, yep. to that's a good idea. Well, that'll, that'll get the ball moving to get the signs put up. Yeah, we'll yeah, do the yeah. enforcement piece. I've got uh, Officer Stewart here taking that, and we'll send that up to the Division Three commander, which will then go to the beat crime manager for that area. And okay, uh, you've also hit on a favorite topic, uh, bills, which is aggressive driving, yep. um, impatience. Uh, I've got to get there the fastest uh, uh, oh because God. I'm it's, so important, all that stuff. It's a race. It's a, it's a race. I drive a truck for a living. I do city deliveries. It's my my ten hour shift is is a, is a stressful day yeah. all day because people don't have the patience to let us back in. Yeah. Uh, I tried to you know a guy tried to pass me yesterday going through a roundabout. I was clearly way ahead of him, and he he went around me and he had to slow down because my trailer took up two uh, two lanes, and he, I got the Trudeau salute for from him for for slowing yeah. him down. I was like you yeah. know like. <laughs> Well, I don't know. I just I got two years to go, and I don't want to see time go by. But <laughs> no, I understand. Thanks, Pat, for the call. Appreciate it, and make sure you d- d- that call to City Hall to your counselor. I had a clown just a couple. I was going to the airport uh, on Highway Six, and and just a guy in a clown outfit, or just no, a, an idiot. Okay, pejorative I, term. Okay, I, I had another word. I was trying to just. You <laughs> well, know. those are better than some of the other ones you might choose. And if you're driving on Highway Six, obviously there, it actually morphs into a left turn lane to get out of there. And I'm driving actually. Well, couple of miles over the speed limit, but I'm, you know, it's, I think it's 60 and I was doing maybe 63. This guy's t- t- me all the way up the highway. Uh, I go to turn, put my signal on, move into the turn. This guy passes me uh, over a double yellow line because and I didn't think that was going to happen. I mean, I, you're right. I did look over the shoulder and just like what the, you know, and I had yep. to hit the brakes. Yep. If I'd made the turn, like a lot of other people would, bingo, this guy T-bones me. And you've raised a good uh, a topic in terms of markings on the highway. Generally speaking, those double solid lines are in locations where you can't see ahead. That's why they put them on the road. They do give you the divided line where it's appropriate and you can see well ahead and when you can do so safely. Uh, but yeah, just the general civility, I agree. And just to the, uh, the Pat's comment earlier, 
Um, you know, and I try to practice this myself. If you're merging onto traffic, well, let the guy in because that could be you on the other side. And, you know, it just makes more uniform traffic flow and stops the bottleneck. There's one, two, then you're not getting a, the salute um, and people all angry and road rage. Uh, just that civility aspect. And probably you might gain one second by not letting that other person in. To your point, and we used to talk about it, you know, speeding slows you down. I've said this to some of the people I've stopped for speeding. I said, I'm not trying to do the campaign here, but now you have to spend this 10 minutes at the side of the road with me, um, issuing a provincial offense notice, which you're not happy about. But guess what? You're also late for your appointment because I'm stopping you um, when that happens. Um, you know, and, and the more severe implications are if you're involved in a serious accident. Well, that's going to have potentially lifelong consequences. So, you know, just civility and uh, common sense. Uh, thanks to everybody who called. Uh, my apologies to the folks that we couldn't get to, but we're just about out of time here. Thanks as always, Chief. Uh, great to have you on the program again today. Thank you, Bill, and a lively discussion that you facilitate as always. As always. Appreciate the time. <laughs> the Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.